Hey, everybody, it's Tommy Canale, and welcome back to Before the Lights Podcast, the show that tells you how they made their mark. He's the author of Mafia Confessions, King of the Bootleggers, Murder, which is a 100% true crime story from the personal diary of Giuseppe Joseph Parisi. He grew up in West Springfield, Massachusetts, but is now in Southern California. Let's welcome in Nick Parisi. Nick, welcome to the show. Hey, Tommy, how are you doing? I am doing well. I'm excited to have you on. I enjoyed the book. Listeners, I'll put a link in the show notes to the book where you can get your hands on it. It's a very good read. But let's start here, Nick. Who had the diary or who found it? One of my cousins had the diary. Um, he's one of the uh, Giuseppe's grandsons. And I didn't get the diary until the book was almost finished. Really? So that was a, yeah, that was a nice little treat to get at the end. And um, I got it just in time and I rewrote the book with the diary included. Nice. Well, I can say this much. Giuseppe was a very good writer from what that diary showed. You know, he was a very intelligent man. It's, uh, it's pretty impressive, you know, how, how intelligent he was. Did you have to go back and then research everything to document what was in the diary? No, because um, it basically confirmed what I already wrote. Um, you know, I had hundreds of newspaper articles and interviews with um, reporters. I had court documents. I had a lot of different, um, a lot of different documentation. And his diary met, you know, it just met everything up perfectly. So it really just confirmed everything. Was this story then in your family forever? Or when did you first learn about this story? Well, I've always known about the story. You know, it's, you know, it's a, it's a huge story and it's a huge story in, in our town. Um, but I started doing some genealogy work just on the Parisi family. And there was just so much newspaper um, stuff about, you know, Giuseppe Parisi and, and, you know, my grandfather, all my uncles, my aunts, my grandmother, the whole Parisi family um, was involved in bootlegging back then. And um, there's just so much, there's just so much there. I just really started getting into and doing some re more research on, on what happened during prohibition. And I came across a mafia genealogist. Um, that's actually the name of his, um, his, his podcast. And he actually did a documentary about the other family. And when he did the other, did the documentary, first of all, he's not from Springfield. He's, he's from, he's from New York. He doesn't even know how to pronounce the names of the people <laughs> in our town, but he started slandering the Parisi name, you know, just, it's just really painting us in a bad way. And really, it was a really biased, um, uh, documentary they did on, on this on this whole murder and it, it really upset me um i actually went on his podcast recently and i told him he was the inspiration you know <laughs> i told him you pissed me off you really pissed me off when you you, you wrote that stuff about the parisi family and it, it it's what made me want to write the book you know get to get the story out there right what were your thoughts then when you actually got the diary and started going through it and reading it you know, I would, you know, it wasn't really the, um, the whole criminal part about the book. It's the stories about how he met his wife 
it's his stories about the interactions with the family, you know, you know, how happy and he was in tears that his father and his sisters were coming over from Italy and he went out and bought furniture and got a nice apartment ready for them. You know, how he, you know, how he followed his future wife, you know, home from work every day, you know, trying to get her attention. And, you know, he even got, you know, beat up by her brothers and he just insisted on, this is going to be my wife one day. And, just that part of it was just, just such incredible, was just so incredible to hear. And, you know, I put it in the book and my book's really geared towards, you know, it's men our age that like the whole mob genre. But when I put that in the book, women are telling me they just love that part of the book. It just, it, it's just so, it just, it, it, it just makes them so likable. And when you read the book, I've had, I've had, ex-police officers that I golf with and, and, you know, people that are prosecutors. And they told me they found themselves rooting for Giuseppe to win the trial, you know, cause he was looking at the death sentence. Yeah. yeah. He was looking at the electric chair and, and they found themselves rooting for him because he became so likable from his diaries. Yeah. You know, so it, it just made the book it just turned, it changed the book from what it was. Let's start getting into it. The Italians were chased out of Italy. Why were they pushed out of their own country? Well, I don't know if they're really chased out of it. Um, you know, fascism and all that was already, you know, run out of there. It was more um, a mass emigration back then. You know, you had some major events happen. You, you know, you had a, a major earthquake that destroyed the Calabria and Sicily. Um, from the earthquake, you had a tsunami. It just, I, I don't want to say the number. It was in the tens of thousands of people died during this earthquake. Now, back then, um, Calabria was kind of cut off from the rest of Italy by a huge mountain range. So everything north of Calabria was, you know, it's kind of like Rome. It's, you know, it's people with money and jobs. Then you go over the mountain and you're in Calabria and it's all, it's really, it was really peasants back then. It was all poor farmers. Um, you had the Dringhetta, which was kind of like the Sicilian mafia, but it's the mafia of Calabria, kind of like uh, the Camorra of Naples. And they were really, you know, just extorting everybody and, you know, kidnapping people and, and all kinds of crime, but there was no work. There was no work at all. So I think, I think the number was it was something like 40% or something like that of the Italian population within 20 years left Italy, mm. you know, during that whole earthquake and all that, you know, um, loss of work and just, just terrible conditions during the late 1800s, early 1900s. In 1900 in Southern Italy, peasants would sleep with their revolvers, but this was also the, the knife and slash time as well. Explain what life was like in those days in Calabria, Italy. Well, yeah, I mean, even the politicians back then, they were using the mafia, the, the Jungata back then to, to sway people to vote for them. Um, everybody was, you know, they're carrying razors and switchblades back then. It, it was um, the black hand. People were getting kidnapped and held ransom from their families. Um, it was just a dangerous time. Um, you know, the, just reading about even, you know, Springfield, Massachusetts back in the early 1900s. Um, I don't think we would have survived back then. Um, they were, they were slicing police, mm -hmm. 
you know, it was, it, it was being a cop was not, you know, it was a dangerous job back then. Um, the Italians and, you know, all, all the ethnic groups that came over, not just the Italians, you know, the Irish have were had some tough gangs back then in our area. And and um, it was a dangerous time. And, yeah, people were quick to pull a knife back then or pull a gun back then. Um, it didn't take much. That's how a lot of feuds were settled quickly back then. Giuseppe left for America at age 17 by himself on May 18th, 1911 and arrived on May 30th in New York City. And listeners, you may be going, age 17, now think about this. You send your 17-year-old son to America by himself. That's going to take him 12 days to two weeks to get to America. But that's what happened back then, right, Nick? That's, that's how it worked, Dan. You know, he he did have a sister that came over first and and uh, and birth. But, you know, they were in Mass. They were spread out in Massachusetts. And I forget how much money he had in his pocket, but it was probably equivalent to like 50 bucks today. And, you know, a suitcase and 50 dollars in your pocket to, to get on a boat as a 17 year old going to another country. You don't know how to speak the language yet. And just here you go. You know, it's um, it's better in America that, you know, these they, they told the Italians that the roads were all, you know, paved from gold in America. But, you know, they didn't tell the Italians that, well, first off, they're not paved in gold. They're actually dirt. And second of all, you guys are going to be the ones paving them, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and not for much money. And I think I think my I, I think Giuseppe made a dollar fifty a week for 58, 58 hours of uh, work a week. January 16th, 1920, prohibition went into effect until December 5th of 1933. So basically, almost 13 years, Carlos Siniscalci, who was the king of the bootleggers in Springfield, Massachusetts, was driven out of New York in 1912. He was thought of as aggressive and malicious. A reporter by the name of James McPhee stated his reputation was rotten. Nick, explain (laughs) why Carlo was driven out of New York. Well, you had the Italian squad. I'm not sure if you ever heard of them. It was a tough group of police officers in New York City. They were all Italian. And their only job was to get rid of the, the black hand. It, was, it wasn't called the mafia yet. It was called the black hand. They were a bunch of, you know, basically kidnappers. And they would, you know, they would, they would grab little kids and hold them ransom or, you know, grab rich businessmen and hold them ransom. Um so they had this Italian squad of really tough Italians, and they went after the the mob. And Siniscalci was part of that black hand. He was um, from Naples. That's the Camorra, which is uh, you know the the Nap- Napolitan uh, mafia, and he was involved in the black hand. So he was run out by the Italian squad. Very famous group of Italian policemen, detectives. They wrote a book about them. It's uh, they're it's pretty interesting. There was a feud between Springfield and West Springfield Italians. Giuseppe was the head of West Springfield. How bitter was this feud just between West and Springfield? Well, it it was huge. And it's what, you know, laid the groundwork. What's, you know, even happening today. Um, You know, everybody wanted a piece of the bootlegging action. You know, you're talking about poor immigrants from Italy that are making a dollar fifty a week. And now you can make, you know, a thousand dollars a day, you know, that's, you know, that's like $50,000 a day today. 
And, you know, just by, you know, selling some alcohol to your friends, you know, opening up a speakeasy, having a, a secret room in your house or, you know, like like Giuseppe, he had a, you know, Parisi's market at the end of my street where I grew up. Um, and back then, you know, you you go down the basement, it was a full bar. So it, it was just easy money, you know, for all the ethnic groups, you know, every ethnic group was doing it. Mm-hmm. And it was just easy money. Um, you know, the, the, the only people against it were the, the hardline purists, you know, basically the people that came over on the Mayflower, you know, that established Springfield Mass in the 1600s. Um, but all the ethnic groups, they wanted their alcohol and they weren't giving it up. And um, it, it p- created a big opportunity. And um, prohibition created the mafia in America. Probably would not be here if it wasn't for prohibition. There was a beef between Siniscalci and Giuseppe, basically that involved bootlegging. Carlo double crosses him and he puts a hit out on Giuseppe. And then Giuseppe shot and killed him over $750 and being scared for his life. Giuseppe was said to be a member of the Camorra Mafia, but that's actually realistic, correct? He was a member of the Camorra. Giuseppe was not. He was not. He was a member of the Dringhetta. So since Galci was from Naples, and Naples is the Camorra, and then you have Calabria, which is the Dringhetta, and they're actually the biggest mafia in the world right now. They're bigger than the Sicilian mafia. Um, so they're competing. They're already from competing villages on other sides of the mountain, but they're also from competing gangs, competing mafias. Um, so there was already bad blood to begin with. They they didn't like each other, you know, as soon as they got to America. And then prohibition starts and they're both setting themselves up their little businesses. And, you know, Giuseppe's in West Springfield across the Connecticut River. You got um, Siniscalci and he up his bootlegging business. And, you know, it was just a small river that divided our two towns. And they started crossing the river and, you know, stealing customers from each other and, and things got heated and um, they, they almost made a deal to do some work together and sent a scalchy, you know, ripped them off for $750. That's, you know, that's like, you know, 60, $70,000 today. So it was a you know large amount of money he ripped them off for. And, um, you know, they say that he bumped to him. Well, since Galchi was, you know, parked in his limo, he, you know, he drove around in the back of a limo. He was doing very well as a bootlegger and they had some words and um, Giuseppe felt he, you know, since Galchi was reaching for his gun and he pulled his gun out and, you know, emptied the revolver into his chest. And um, that, that end of that. How big of news was it that the king of little Italy was dead? It it was huge. That's, that's why I made writing this book so easy. Um, there's probably a hundred newspaper articles that week alone, you know, all through new England, you know, you, you know, I found stuff all the way out in California was being written about it. It was, it was a huge thing. It, it, you know, it was a big murder. Um, cause it was, it was noontime. It was a couple of days before Christmas. It was on main street in front of the, in front of the big, you know, uh, store we had, you know, it's, it's kind of like a Macy's. Um, so there's, there's hundreds of people shopping and this murder happens right in the middle of it, you know, right. You know, just before Christmas, 
it, it was a big deal, right in broad daylight. How was Carlos' murder then taken by the community? Well, um, the Springfield side wanted revenge. You know, he was loved by his people. You know, it's 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 the South End Springfield. It's a hundred percent, hundred percent Italian, and he was the leader. He he was the you know, he was the man in charge. Um, his wife was Pascalina Siniscalci, formerly Albano. Her father is is known for being the man that brought thousands of Italians to America. Uh, he was a padrone. A padrone is a guy who um, he basically brings people of his own country to work in the factories in America. And he gets paid by the factories to find these people. So he brings them over, he gets paid. And, um, you know, he, he all makes money from running a travel agency of, you know, getting people the tickets to get here. Then he's got, you know, places for them to stay. He feeds them. So the Albano family and the Siniscalci family became, you know, became one. And when they got married and, you know, they, you know, they, it was a huge family and they just, you know, they sought revenge from that point on. It, it was, it was just a huge um, thing to kill, you know, the king of bootleggers, but also the, the you know, the, the son-in-law of the father of all the Italians, the, the man brought everybody to Springfield. You talked about retaliation. July 3rd of 1922, that exact thing happened against the Parisi's family while Giuseppe was in prison and the car where the bullets that were fired from belonged to the widow of Carlos which was Pascalina. And yes. this this is the best line for me in the book. Matter of fact, I have printed this out and I've made a little <laughs> card of it. This one right here, people. The brother of Giuseppe, John Parisi, says, quote, Italians don't snitch. We handle problems ourselves, end quote. I absolutely love that. And then he shot Durante Siniscalci that afternoon, who was the brother of Carlo. So this was going back and forth. We, this was an all out mob war from there. Oh, oh, July 3rd. It just got huge. Um, you know, like you said, my, that, that John Parisi is my grandfather and, um, he's the one that, well, I won't, you know, allegedly he's the one that shot Durante, which was Carlos's brother. But what really was big on July 3rd was when Giuseppe's wife, my aunt, was visiting Giuseppe at the jail while he's waiting for trial. And she goes with, you know, my uncles, um, the Dialessis, they have their attorney, and they have my uncle, um, Pasquale Marvici. He's only 40 years old at the time. He's along with them for the visit at the jail. So when they leave and they're headed back to West Springfield from the York Street Jail, they get followed by a car owned by Pascalina Siniscalci, the widow, and driving the car is Theodore Vona, which is Siniscalci's nephew, and along with another um, individual, a couple eighteen-year-old, you know, kids basically. And they followed the car. They drove by it, and they, they, you know, the Tommy guns. They just riddled the car with bullets. Then they got to the end of the street. They turned around and came back, and they they riddled riddled it up again. And my my uncle at four years old at the time, he got shot, you know, at four years old um, in the arm. And, you know, they were trying to assassinate, you know, my aunt and my uncle and, and his attorney, you know, right there in front of the jail. 
Um, yeah, they're, 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 they weren't worried about the police back then. No, no. How, what was the magnitude of this court case at the time? Because from reading the book, 2000 people showed up for the closing arguments. Yes. Yeah. It, it was a huge court case. It's the favorite part of my book. Um, I love the whole trial. Um, I wish I could just write a book about the trial alone, but you know, I don't know if anybody would buy it, you know, but the trial was so interesting. Um, like it said, there was over 2000 people standing around the courthouse. You know, you didn't have TV back then. So when something happened, you just had to go there yourself, just try to witness it yourself. And they surrounded the, they surrounded the courthouse to, um, to, to listen to this trial. The trial was about a week and a half long and it was a, it was a huge trial. And, um, the first day of the trial, you know, one, one, one guy tried to bring a gun in and they, they caught him with the gun underneath his shirt. So I don't, I, and, you know, I'm not sure if they're going to try to, you know, shoot Giuseppe, uh, but he had gun under his shirt trying to get into the, into the courtroom and they got him just in time. But um, it, it was a huge trial. It made news all over the country. Um, his attorney was very famous. Um, even at this time, he was the former prosecutor that actually put Sinescalchi in jail years ago, but he just became a defense attorney. But he was one of the most well-spoken speech writers of his era. He wrote he at the time he was a. Uh, he was with the Democratic Party and he was writing the speeches for presidents at the time. And he was introducing presidents. He was um, doing the speeches for all their rallies. He, he was just a great speaker. And, um, yeah, people just you know surrounded the court just to listen to him talk and give those arguments. Listeners, go to the show notes. Like I said, I'm going to put a link to the book, Mafia Confessions, King of Bootlakers, Murder. You have to get your hands on this book. The jury deliberated for hours, and at 2.30 a.m., they reached a verdict. They said, guilty. guilty. They asked for extreme leniency, although Judge Thayer didn't see it that way, did he, Nick? No, he didn't see it that way, and he, he actually took offense to it. You know, you don't, you don't tell a judge, you know, you know, guilty, but, you know, we want you to, you know, we want you to sentence them this way, you know. They were looking to give him the electric chair, you know, for premeditated murder. And, you know, they found him guilty, but they felt that he should just have time served. He was in, you know, he was in jail for 18 months. And they felt they felt it was self-defense and they wanted the judge to, um, you know, to just let him have time served. And he took great offense to this and he actually gave him the maximum that he could give him for for um, manslaughter at the time, which was 10 years. And he, he gave him the maximum 10 years. And I, I, you know, I really believe it was because the jury requested that he be very lenient with him. After serving years in prison, 11 jurors signed a petition to the Massachusetts governor requesting a full pardon. Giuseppe served five and a half years and was released with six years probation. That tells me something right there that the jurors, they still weren't happy with this sentence. So I'm reading this going, wow, I've not read a case to where the jurors come back and go, hey, we want to give this guy a pardon. We got to get this guy out. Yeah. Yeah. And so many years later, they, they, you know, they felt that he was, you know, they felt it was unjust that he was given 10 years in, in prison. 
And they, you know, years later, they're still trying to, you know, get the, you know, get the governor to pardon him. And, you know, it, it didn't work the first time. Um, but yeah, they, they felt, you know, they felt that, you know, he was a very likable guy. They felt that Siniscalchi was a, you know, a really bad person. You know, he, you know, years earlier, you know, two got two of his buddies, you know, held the arms behind his back and they slashed his face and his neck, you know, Siniscalchi was a, a mean guy. And, you know, my, uh, Giuseppe came across as a naive young man, you know, he was very likable. And by the end of the trial, you know, they felt that, you know, Siniscalchi deserved it. The 1920s was a period of intense violence, people. Like a police officer got beat up and the fine was $200. I mean, a lot of money back then, but you beat up a police officer and you get a fine. The bootlegging business was booming in the Massachusetts area, especially in Springfield and in West Springfield. Pascalina Carlos's widow becomes the queen of bootlegging. And from what I could find out, Nick, she became pretty vicious, didn't she? Yeah, she became really uh, vicious. Um, she had a really good partner, though. She had Mike Miranda, uh, Antonio Miranda. I'm sorry. Um, that's the brother of Mike Miranda, who's the at the time the consigliere to Vito Genovese. Mm. So he's Vito Genovese's right-hand man. Um, Antonio comes to Springfield, marries Pascalina Siniscalchi, and now you get the Genovese crime family of New York City in Springfield helping Pascalina with her activities of continuing the bootlegging business. So she has some serious muscle at the time. Yeah, she went through after Carlos two husbands, and then she was brutally gunned down. It was an unprecedented organized crime hit on a woman. And I, I was trying to think of another one, but this seems like probably the first time a woman was gunned down on an organized crime hit. Yeah. And it was, um, it was just after my, my, it was just after Giuseppe got out of jail and, and, um, that unfortunately happened to her. Um, you know, she did a lot of bad things herself and, um, you know, some people got even. They said that her husband slash companion at the time was Michael Fiore, and he was next to the car when they brutally gunned down Pascalina and was only hit on the elbow. He himself was suspected of setting up the hit to gain control of the bootlegging business, but I believe that they finally got him cleared on that. It's my and it's many people believe that, you know, he was part of that hit, that he wanted to take over the family and um by doing, you know, that he was involved in a hit on his own girlfriend, Pascalina. And um, his his nephew is Mario Fiore. And for people that don't know who Mario Fiore, Fiore is, he's a legend. He's right now the oldest living made member of the Genovese crime family. And he just read my book last mm. week. Um, he called me up on um, New Year's Eve and said, Nick, I just ordered your book. I can't wait to get it. And I said, you know, Mario, um, it's, you know, it'll be hard for you to read because, you know, your, your aunt gets brutally murdered, your, your uncle, um, your dad, the book, and, you know, I'm really graphic. So he goes, don't worry about it. You know? So, you know, he, he I get a text like four days later, I got the book I'm opening up right now. I can't, I'm going to start reading it right now. So I waited about four or five days. And I sent a text to him. Hey, boss, 
that you love the book? Nothing. Oh, crickets. <laughs> oh, no. I, I, I upset. You know, the guy's a legend. He, you know, he's been a made man since the 1970s under the Scabelli regime, big no Sam Kaferi, all the way to today. He's still alive. He's still conducting um, business in La Fiorentino Bakery every morning with his espresso. Um, every every mobster in town goes to him for advice. And I, you know, and I, I think I pissed him off. But I'm playing golf a couple of days ago and I get a phone call from his son. And, uh, you know, I, I grew up with his son um, and he's like, sorry, but, you know, we had an illness in the family and my dad was, um, you know, predisposed with that. He loves the book. Mm. I'm like, oh, that's the greatest thing, you know, for, you know, because th this whole story is about, you know, my family and his family. Mm -hmm. And he was nine years old and Pascalino was murdered. And, you know, we'll probably be talking about it, but his uncle gets murdered also. Um, a few years later. And he was, you know, he was nine, 10 years old at the time. He, he's going to be a hundred years old this year. And he's still an active member of the Genovese crime family. Well, when his uncle was taken out gangland style. Yes. Did that then lead to the formation of what we now refer to these days as the commission? Um, the commission was formed in about 1930 in Atlantic city by um, John Rio. So we're, the, the, that hit hap, happened in 1933, just before prohibition ended. Um, but yeah, things were get, things were already organized at the time. So Genovese, his consigliere, you know, Antonio Miranda, Mirascalina, but he he died a year later. He got some blood poisoning. Um, he was having a simple callus removed from his foot. They gave him a blood transfusion. It was from a college student and he got gonorrhea and he died. And, you know, the Genovese family felt, you know, they Springfield was theirs at the time because, um, you know, it, it's, you know, it's uh, Vito Genovese's man that's over there running things. And he dies of um, gonorrhea and. Michael Fiore slips in all of a sudden and, you know, and then all of a sudden Pascalina, you know, gets hit and, um, you know, he was trying to over the, you know, take over the family from the Genovese family. And next thing you know, he, you know, he's, he's getting his weekly shave at the barbershop. He goes to every single, you know, week, the same day, same time. And two guys walked in and got in each of them and they, they filled them up with lead. And um, that kind of put an end to that. And um, the Genovese family still, you know, still controls Springfield to today. I want to go back to Giuseppe's attorney that you talked about. Joseph Eli was elected Commonwealth first Democratic governor in 14 years. He won two terms as the Massachusetts governor. And on March 29th, 1933, Giuseppe was granted a full pardon. I mean, talk yeah. about full circle. I mean, comes all the way back around. Funny how that works, huh? It is. The, 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 the governor, the governor of Massachusetts, you know, pardons a convicted killer that um, was, you know, admitted he did it. You know, he confessed to doing it. He said, I thought he was pulling a gun. And so I shot him in self-defense. So he he's an admitted killer in jail for murder. And the governor, as soon as he got elected, pardons him. Giuseppe, to celebrate fills out citizenship papers for the second time. But when was the first time he filled them out? 
Um, he probably filled them out when he, you know, he first came to America, but, um, you know, he was denied it. You know, it takes a long time to get your citizenship papers. Um, but yeah, um, if you notice when he, he fills out the second set, the, the governor of Massachusetts is actually with him. And when he's in front of the board of, um, the board to get, you know, you know, they, they vote whether or not you're going to be a citizen back then. And he's sitting in front of the board and sitting next to him is the governor of Massachusetts. So they're not going to vote no <laughs> when the governor is sitting next to you. Um, yeah, you know, he was a very influential, influential man. And um, he had friends in, in high places and and the governor was one of them. As I said, listeners, click the link in the show notes. The book is called Mafia Confessions, King of Bootleggers Murder. It's a 100% true crime story from the personal diary of Giuseppe Joseph Parisi. Nick, what else do you want to tell my listeners about this story or about the book? You know, I, I was thinking this morning, actually, you know, and I never thought about this for the last year when I was writing the book, but if if Giuseppe did not kill Carlos Sinescalchi on that day, I don't think the Genovese crime family would have ever moved into Springfield. Now, the Genovese crime family is huge in Springfield, the, the, the faction. Um, they've been active since um, about 1925, all the way till today. If Giuseppe didn't kill Carlos Sinescalchi, then his wife, widow, would not have married the consigliere's brother of Vito Genovese. So I don't think the Genovese crime family would be there today. I, I think this kicked off the uh, a, a series of events that led to today's current mafia. It's funny. They say everything happens for a reason, but even a murder happened for a reason. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Nick, thanks so much for taking some time. And first of all, turning me on to the book and coming on the show and talking about it. Oh, I appreciate it. You're going to love my next book. I'm already writing the second book and it's um, it continues on with the Genovese crime family. And it's going to be about the current bosses of, of Springfield. It's going to be about um, the mob during the 80s and the 90s of, um, you know, Aralata who flipped against, you know, he was a Genovese capo. He killed the head of the mob, Al Bruno, in Springfield. He becomes mob boss. They kill a bunch of people. Then he gets fingered and he flips on 47 members of the Genovese crime family, puts them all in prison. Now, two of the people he put in prison that helped with the mob hit with Al Bruno, which will be part of this book, is Freddie Gius. Freddie Gius was one of my best friends in high school. Now, Freddie Gius goes to prison. While he's in prison, they put him in the cell with Whitey Bulger. Mm. And... So in two months, he, he's already admitted to doing it. But my, my buddy from high school is the one who killed Whitey Bulger in prison. And um, as soon as he gets out of solitary confinement, I'll start talking with him. But I'm actually talking to all the current members of the mafia. Today, and we're doing a book on the Springfield mob. And it's completely opposite of what people think have been going on. Um, the newspapers have it totally wrong of what they're reporting in Springfield right now with the Genovese crime family. And I'm talking to her members, current members, and I'm talking to the informant that flipped on everybody. And this book is going to be, um, this should be a, a huge revelation, a huge book um, on what's going on in the mafia today. 
with, with the type of people I'm talking to. I'm definitely reading that one when it comes out. <laughs> okay, great. That's one sale. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, she got one sale for sure. I'm sure you'll get a whole bunch right. more. But listeners, as an inspirational speaker that I do on the side, my story will inspire you to inspire others. My story of beating cancer against the odds will get you on the path to change your life and become a better version of yourself. Click the link in the show notes or go to TommyCanelli.com. That's TommyCanelli.com. That's going to do it for this episode of Before the Lights. Until next time, everybody, salute a chin-chin. <laughs>